Welcome to the Precision Medicine Podcast, where experts come to discuss the problems oncologists, reference labs, and payers face as precision medicine grows and consider solutions for advancing the quality of patient-centered cancer care. Hello, I'm Jerome Madison, Vice President of Provider Relations at Trapello and one of the hosts of the Precision Medicine Podcast. And today I have David Messina, Chief Operating Officer of Cofactor Genomics, and we'll be discussing how to enable precision medicine using RNA-based information and technologies. Dave, thank you so much for being on the podcast and welcome. Thanks so much, Jerome. Really great to be here. Absolutely. So Dave, we met at the Harvard Medical School at the Personalized Medicine Conference, and we were doing our Men on the Spot podcast interviews for the Precision Medicine Podcast. And when we met, I learned something really unique about you and your leadership team at Cofactor Genomics. Many of you have experience from the Genome Center at WashU, which was really predating the Cancer Genome Atlas Project. But can you tell us about that experience and how that led to you founding Cofactor Genomics? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So we were fortunate to be really in the thick of it during the heady days of the first human genome project. So we were there actually a little bit before that started, I think, just at the beginning when with the first large genome to be done in that center and collaborating with other centers was the the worm genome. And Bob Waterston, who was one of the leaders of the project and, and on the WashU side, was a worm biologist. And uh, some of us like to joke that maybe he wanted to get the worm genome done first. Uh, <laughs> so you can imagine what it was like to be around large research center where there was a, a factory or, or military type approach to generating the massive amounts of data that was necessary. And that, the reason for that, and a lot of new technology had to be developed along the way. So you, So when the project began, the investigators who started it knew that they would not be able to complete it without the creation of, of new types of technology, both on the, the hardware sequencing side, but also in terms of the molecular and, and computational approaches. And so it was, it, at that time, sequencing was a much slower throughput endeavor. So this was uh, the days of the ABI 3730 and 377 sequencers where you'd have to cast a slab gel of acrylamide and you could only load uh, 96 samples at a time and you could only get about 600 bases per read. So the on a good run, you could get maybe 60, 70,000 letters of DNA generated at a time. And the reason why it took, give or take, 10 years and $3 billion to do it the first time is that it was really took an army of people or at research institutions across the world to be able to generate all of those gels and, and process all that data and stitch together what was the largest jigsaw puzzle in, in human history. Yeah. What was it like using the different technologies? Now we have technologies that are very efficient and, and have high throughput with, with what they are measuring. But what was it like in the limitations of the technology and the platforms you guys were using during that time? So the manual process did involve a lot more skill than we think of today. Today, you load a sequencer. Most of them are cartridge-based formats. So you load the sample, it automatically can can do 
millions or even billions of sequencing reactions in, in parallel on the next generation sequencing machines. At that time, in loading this gel manually, you had a very fine flat-tipped pipette that you had to load. So I had come from the University of Chicago, where I had been involved in a human genetics project, which was involved you know, pre-human pre genome, right? So we didn't have the map of the human genome. And we had to figure out where, out of all the, the, the billions of bases in the, of, of human DNA, where the gene that was likely to be responsible for, for the disease we were looking at was going to be. And so I loaded a genotyping gel, a sequencing gel, just about every day for a year to generate the data to, and we were thrilled that we, we were able to narrow down the location of this putative disease gene to, to about one, one million bases of DNA, you know, so maybe 50 or 60 genes in there, and we didn't even really know how many. And I got pretty good at loading those gels, doing it about every day for a year. When I got to wow. the Genome Center at Washington University, I loaded some gels there as part of the Human Genome Project with some of the, the folks who had been doing that three shifts a day there. They were way better than I was and way, way more accurate and way faster. They, they were able to load a gel in about twice as fast as I could and, and, and do it more accurately. And so there was that level of skill there, even just in generating good quality uh, data by having a good load on the gel. So much different than today and or even just a few years later than that when the next generation sequencing machines started to come online in the mid 2000s. Yeah. You know, a lot of the work that you guys did then and of course with the emergence of NGS technology, much of the focus has been on cracking the code of DNA. But your work there at Cofactor Genomics goes beyond DNA focusing on the importance of RNA. Why is it important to examine RNA and how does that differ from what DNA can tell us about a patient's disease? Right, so DNA has unquestionably been critical in our understanding of human biology and, and knowing the entire parts list, if you will, of, of, of what makes a human being from its DNA has been essential information. But DNA fundamentally is about potential. It's the what might be, and when we look at DNA, it's we talk about risk, we talk about estimates, because DNA is really just the master instruction book, and very rarely does DNA mean destiny in, in the way that we think of it. And so that's why if any of you have done the 23andMe or, uh, or that sort of home testing, you'll see things like your likelihood of, of developing a disease based on your, your DNA. So that information is really helpful, but wouldn't it be great if we could get more of a real-time readout, a barometer of your health? And that's really what RNA provides. So if we think of DNA as the, the master recipe list, we know that in any given cell in the body, all the 20,000 genes that exist in the human genome, not all of them are going to be turned on in every cell in the body. And if we identify, say, a, a variant or a mutation in your DNA, that doesn't necessarily mean that the gene with that variant is, is expressed in, in the tissue where it matters or the cell where it matters. So RNA being the active form of, of DNA, that DNA gets copied into to RNA. And so you have lots of copies of RNA in a cell that are then turned into proteins, which actually do the work. And so 
The real advantage of looking at RNA instead is that you can use the high throughput technology that was developed for DNA sequencing with RNA, but you're really getting a readout that's much more like the protein, what's actually doing work in the cell, which is what you really care about. But the technology today doesn't exist to be able to, to read proteins in directly in a high throughput way. So RNA occupies this sweet spot in the middle where we can use high throughput technology, but understand really what's going on in real time in the cell and get a, get a picture of whether that cell is healthy or sick or whether it's likely to be um, responsive to a treatment. I think that's a really important distinction because a lot of the conversations focus on DNA sequencing today. And just to, to quote what you said, DNA can only tell you potential. It's about risk where RNA tells you what's happening today with that patient's disease and whether the cell is healthy or potentially carcinogenic. Exactly. And so except for scenarios like cancer, you know, our, our DNA really doesn't change much from, from when we're born till, till we die. It is mostly stable. And yes, we see changes in the, in the cancer genome, but by and large, our DNA doesn't change. And so, but your RNA does, your RNA is changing all the time. It's a dynamic molecule. And so being able to look at what genes are turned on and off and in what combination in a cell or a tissue gives you far more information, a much richer source of information about what's going on inside your body. And so that's why it makes such a powerful molecule for so many areas from drug development right on through to diagnostics, to being able to use it in treatment decisions. Absolutely. And the, the technology to make these measurements, to, to make these findings is key. And that's what's going to enable precision medicine. And, and technology is now catching up to the imagination of scientists like you. And in fact, I read somewhere where you compare where we are in precision medicine today to pre-internet computers. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I thought that was very, very poignant. Can you explain a little bit more what you mean by that? Sure. So, so, here we are in the end of 2018. If we rewind 30 years and think about what computers were like in 1988. So in 1988, you could get your state-of-the-art computer would be, you know, an, maybe an Intel 286 or 386 processor. You'd get less than a, a megabyte, so 600 KB of RAM maybe. You'd be storing stuff on floppies. If you had, you know, if you had a hard drive, it was going to be maybe 80 megabytes. Your, your monitor was going to be, you know, maybe 16 colors, if it was color at all. And you'd spend about $2,500 in inflation-adjusted dollars for that. So pretty primitive compared to the computers we have today, where we essentially have supercomputing-like performance on the cell phone, the, the mobile phones in our pockets. We have pocket computers that can access essentially any information on the planet. And nevertheless... The computers in 1988 were extremely useful. And we had already at that point about 15% of homes in the U.S. had a personal computer. And so we got a lot done with them. And it certainly wasn't the beginning of personal computing, but it was so primitive compared to today. We really, if we were sitting in 1988 and trying to look into the future 30 years of what personal computing would be like, we might be able to guess that things would be cheaper or faster 
in those kind of broad strokes. But we really would have, it would have been difficult. And I would expect very few people at that time really had a, a clear conception of how much computing has changed our lives over the last 30 years and, and, and what advances we have seen in really every area of our lives. And this, you know, there was, we, the internet existed in a primitive form. There was, you know, but it wasn't at all like it is today. Email existed, but hardly anybody outside of government labs used it. And so, so if we then try to use that as an analogy for where we are in, in genomics or let's say precision medicine today. So precision medicine in 2018 is kind of like that 286 computer 30 years ago. We have a lot that we can do with precision medicine and we, can, we know that it's going to be hugely important uh, in the future, but it's very difficult to, for us to see, to understand really the full breadth of how that's going to be true. We can start to to think about some some ways in which it might be true, and and that really underscores for me what an amazing time it is for us to be in in biology and really in this uh, this burgeoning area of precision medicine. We're at the beginning mostly, but we're far enough along that we're already starting to see some of the value and some of the power. Yeah, I just think that's a fascinating illustration about pre-internet computers compared to the smartphone that most people carry in their back pocket, and it's just amazing, just as next-gen sequencing capabilities have made tumor cell profiling and personalized cancer medicine a reality. Here comes immuno-oncology, which is a whole new world with respect to biomarker function and detection methods. How does this affect, or how should it affect, pharmaceutical companies' approach to drug development? So immuno-oncology, and, and most of you listening to this probably know this, but this is really this amazing new class of drugs where the where we have the body's own immune system able to fight the cancer and we have built up techniques which and and I should say when they work they're incredibly effective so you know the success rates or the 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 overall response rate and survival rates that we see when people when these medications are effective in people with devastating cancers is is remarkable so it, it, and the problem is, though, that although they work really well when they work, um, they don't work well for everybody. And so immunotherapies, uh, on average, work, say, in, in roughly, let's say, 30% of patients. Uh, and that's, that's an average. It's some, in some cases, more, in, certain, in some cases, much less. So in order to understand how best we can take advantage of this and, and, and really develop new medications that extend this, the advances that we've seen with immunotherapies. We've got lots and lots of, of folks who are working very hard at sort of the next generation or different, different ways of, of taking that same approach and building the next generation of, of immunotherapies. And one of the ways that they're approaching this is by trying to understand which patients are going to be likely to respond well to these treatments and which won't. And that's a difficult question to, to answer. So the, the kind of the primary biomarker, if you will, the companion diagnostic that, that is used most widely with immunotherapies is, is called a PD-L1 antibody, which really uh, the field has come to learn with its widespread use, not really a great uh, biomarker, a pretty high correlation with response to immunotherapies, but far from perfect. And so there's been recognized a need to develop better biomarkers. And, and really, I think what we're seeing in the field is a shift overall from 
the classic single biomarker approach where we're trying to capture all the complexity of what's going on in, in a patient with just one measuring one thing and hoping that that will correlate well with, with something as complex as response to a treatment. We're moving to this era where we're not only thinking about using multiple analytes to understand patient response to therapy, but multidimensional biomarkers where we're actually taking many signals, say, from RNA and are able to combine them in a sophisticated way with computational models that allow us to capture all the complexity of what's going on inside a patient and better understand their likely response to a treatment or their prognosis or any other number of things that we use biomarkers for. So it's this ability to take complex information, say it's from, from RNA, combine it with highly sophisticated software models and, and use that to, to inform uh, treatments and be able to see which patients are likely to respond, even in, even in the drug development phase. Yeah. You know, it's our goal at Trapello to provide greater access and scale to precision medicine by eliminating the obstacles, prior authorization, insurance denials, because it's been said by many that reimbursement of diagnostic tools is the major hurdle to facilitating precision medicine. So, so Dave, we ask everybody that comes on the podcast you know, what are your ideas on how and why these diagnostic tools that companies like Cofactor Genomics are developing should be covered by insurers? Right. So, so in order to unlock the potential of, of these groundbreaking medicines, it's essential to have sophisticated diagnostics to pair with them. It makes no sense to continue to treat patients based on the law of averages, which is really how it's done for the most part today. Patients get prescribed medications based on what works most of the time in most patients with, with that disease. And we can do better. We can do so much better. And, and, and so it's critical to be able to take advantage of the new technology, such as multidimensional biomarkers, to be able to have just as sophisticated a diagnostic to pair with a treatment decision, to be able to pair with these amazing new uh, medicines like immunotherapies that we see. So there's no question that this will come. And really the, the challenge for us today in the industry, and with this includes the, the regulatory and re reimbursement bodies, is how to bridge the gap from the world we know where we are a, a single analyte world and we think in terms of trying to reduce the complexity of a patient to, to one marker, to where technology is going and, and at today, where we have a multidimensional, we have the ability to use multidimensional biomarkers and in, in, in diagnostics like cofactor is developed. So there's no question that it's coming. It's going to be, I think, a, a battleground. And there's an opportunity for forward-thinking in, insurers and and regulators to really enable that. And it's possible, I think, to do that in a safe way. We can still apply all the same standards of, of efficacy, uh, all the measures that we apply towards uh, approving new diagnostics today. We don't need to create, I think, a whole new language around those or a whole new set of regulations. We simply just need to take advantage of the approaches that we have that are emerging and, and really adjust to to that new reality. It's, it's not going to be possible to think in, in single biomarker terms for much longer. Right. You know, those in the space are, we're dedicated to challenging the norms. And I noticed that 
cofactor genomics, you guys did that even in your office design. I saw where you have musical instruments, bicycles, and even ski gondolas in the office. Now, that's not your typical setup for, you know, a highly scientific group of folks that are working on a genome. <laughs> How does this impact, like, the work your team is doing in the overall culture? Uh, <laughs> yeah, we do have a beautiful office where we have musical instruments. A lot of folks from Cofactor have a musical background. Our, our chief scientific officer, my, my partner, dear friend, John Armstrong, was a professional musician and actually signed to a major label uh, many years ago and still performs and records music in his spare time. And there are other folks at Cofactor who, who play music outside of science. And I think one thing that we see, and a lot of other folks will probably recognize this too, is that there's a lot of similarities between the creativity that comes in the form of, uh, of, of music and the creativity that, that comes with, with great science. And so it's totally natural for us that our, our workplace reflects that interplay and that we have a, a space that fosters creativity and, and is enjoyable to be around. And we want people to do our best work, their best work at, at Cofactor. And so it only makes sense to us to, to have an environment that encourages that. That's awesome. That's awesome. Well, we want to thank Dave Messina of Cofactor Genomics and, of course, all of our listeners for joining us today. We hope that you'll tune in for the next episode of the Precision Medicine Podcast. And don't forget, you can download full transcripts of today's episode at precisionmedicinepodcast.com. If you enjoyed this episode, you probably know someone else who would. So please tell them. They'll thank you. And so will we.